Welcome to Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics. I'm Chris from PleasureMechanics.com, and on today's episode, we are in conversation with Dr. Nan Wise, a neuroscientist who has devoted her life to understanding pleasure, emotions, and how we can come into more active relationship with our mind bodies so that we can enjoy life to the fullest. Dr. Nan Wise is the author of Why Good Sex Matters, Understanding the Neuroscience of Pleasure for a Smarter, Happier, and More Purpose-Filled Life. With a title like that, you know we had to interview her, and we are thrilled to have this conversation to bring to you today. If you want more after this interview, go to pleasuremechanics.com slash wise, where you will find bonus clips, links to her book, and much more. That's pleasuremechanics.com slash wise. Here is our one... Here is our interview with Dr. Nan Wise on pleasure, anhedonia, and what we can all do to feel more deeply together. Cheers. So welcome to Speaking of Sex, Dr. Nan Wise. Can you please introduce yourself and the work you do in this world and how you came to write a book called Why Good Sex Matters? So I'm Dr. Nan, and I am a person who has been navigating a very, shall we say, hot-wired nervous system my whole life. So I've had anxiety. I come from a long line of people of anxiety. So I made it my life's work to be able to better understand how the brain-mind works. And what better window into that is our relationship with our sexuality. So I first got um, trained as a psychotherapist. I got a social work degree. I had two kids. I had a practice for a lot of years and I always talked about sex. So I'd ask people, you know, how are you eating? How are you sleeping? What are your relationships like? How's your sex life? To me, sex was always an integral part of being a human being. So it was always on my radar. And about 20 years into my practice, I was at the point I was ready to go back to school. I was always in love with the brain. My first <laughs> a sort of graduate experience before I became a social worker was I was I went to grad school for a while to study it was actually the brain, but we didn't have fMRI then. So we worked with animals. I couldn't do that couldn't do invasive animal work. So I said, check, please. So I became a social worker. And then after 20 years, I went back to grad school after connecting with Beverly Whipple when I was doing my certification in sex therapy. And she said, oh, we could use some somebody who could, a clinician down at the scanner at the lab. And next thing I know, at the age of 50, I was signing on to grad school for a PhD. And I never looked back. It was such it is such a joy to have tools and to be able to put together, you know, the idea of how do we work the brain mind better? And central mm. to that, which is something that we didn't know about when I was first studying psychology, is that we come 
hardwired with these core emotional systems. In the ancient parts of the brain mind that we share with all mammals, for sure, and other animals, and that if we don't understand how when those core emotional instincts, when they're out of balance, how they affect all aspects of our lives, we're not really dealing with what's going to make a big difference in our lives. So the connection to pleasure, Chris, is pleasure is not a luxury. It's a necessity. It's a signal mm. about from to our brains about what feels good. So we pursue pleasures and then what's painful, we actually avoid. That's gotten a little hijacked with the way that we live our lives now, but it's fundamental. Our ability to experience pleasures in our bodies, what I call healthy hedonism, pleasures that feel good and are good for us is integral mm. to a well-balanced life. And if we're not experiencing pleasure, the condition of anhedonia, it's a contributor to mental health challenges, anxiety, depression, stress-related disorders, all mental health challenges, including things like schizophrenia and personality disorders at their root have this challenge to people being able to experience pleasures through everyday life. And so anhedonia not only is a symptom of these, these disorders or these challenges, but it's actually a cause of even addiction. So I think we really need to address what I call the silent epidemic, which is anhedonia, the inability to experience pleasure. And that's my life's work. I, I work on it myself every day. And I'm so excited about having the opportunity to work with you and the pleasure mechanics on this and get this out to as many people as possible because it affects us all. You know, how we feel inside really affects how we treat other people. That is so real. So real. Can you break down this word pleasure for us? Because I feel like, you know, after 20 years of working in this field, I often feel like people still think about pleasure as something that's done to us or an external thing. When the science tells us pleasure is an output, pleasure is a state internal to us. So what is pleasure from your perspective as a neuroscientist? The brain mind is wired to experience unconditioned pleasures. In other words, we don't need to learn as babies to love the taste of breast milk or whatever formula, whatever it is that we're consuming as babies. It tastes good. And then it actually is a learning signal that connects us with doing what we need to do, which is to be nourished. And mm -hmm. likewise, pain is also an unconditioned, meaning you don't have to learn that to fear pain. Babies right out of the womb, when they experience any kind of pain, they have a very unpleasant reaction to it and they will try and pull away from it. They don't, they learn to fear pain, but pain is an intrinsic signal to the brain, mind, body that something is dangerous. So we're wired for pain and pleasure as learning signals that teach us to approach that which feels good and hopefully is good for us and to avoid that what feels bad, which 
happens to be in many cases things that are bad for us. And that has gotten hijacked by the way that we use our brain minds and by things like devices and technology and being out of the flow of our senses, being disconnected mm. from our bodies. And I've seen that pretty much my whole career, that when I would talk to clients who came to me because they were having challenges with anxiety, depression, relationships, you name it, it's like their heads on sticks. If I would say to them, what's going on in your body right now? I'm trained in gestalt therapy, which is all about the body. You know, emotions in the body, feeling them, letting them peak and release as a way of kind of getting more present. And when I would ask people what's going on in their bodies, they'd say, I'm angry. Well, how do you know? Well, I don't know. I'm angry. What are you feeling in your body? And they would look at me like I had like two, three heads. I don't know what you mean. And still to this day, what is really key in helping people heal, whatever it is out of balance. So we look at what's out of balance in their core emotions. So we have these core emotions that we inherit because that's as human beings, they come with our hard wiring. Some of us have predispositions, for example, in my family to the panicky anxiety stuff. And then our, in our lives, our experiences shape that. So just like in attachment, you know, when we're born and then we have really good experiences with when we're nurtured and our parents are attuned, that will downregulate the defensive systems and people learn that the world is safe and they can, their needs are okay. You know, like a, the whole idea of a secure attachment style is the greatest example of the interaction between nature and nurture. Our predispositions can be either enhanced or exaggerated by our experiences and our learning, or they can be calmed, like a, a baby that has a sensitive nervous system with a calm mother is going mm -hmm. to learn how to downregulate that themselves. So back to the, you know, pleasures of wired in response. And we've had such a negative conditioning, thanks to our puritanical roots in this country to think of pleasure as a bad thing, rather than why get up in the morning if you can't experience the pleasures of your everyday life, except we're looking in all the wrong places. Hmm. Yeah, and you point out in the book that, you know, there is no shortage of pleasurable stimuli in this world. And yet so many of us don't feel much pleasure at all or are totally numbed out to it. Um, but how do we start recognizing this, that there is more available to us and start taking a little bit of agency towards learning how to feel more pleasure? The learning how to feel more pleasure, Chris, is very important. So the yeah. reason why I'm passionate about teaching about the core emotions, teaching my colleagues, teaching my readers, teaching everybody about like these core emotions and how the brain mind works is that when we have that education, when we understand, that's what we call psychoeducation in psychology, like when we recognize kind of what's happening, you know, the awareness of it. 
where we're out of balance gives us very good information. So a lot of this is about learning to prioritize pleasure, to learning how the pleasure system works. What I write about in the book, what's really hijacking the pleasure system, it's actually called the seeking system in my book. We used to call it reward pathways, but it's actually seeking Mm -hmm. because what it is, Mm -hmm. it gets our attention to meet our needs. And it's wired in such a way, powered by dopamine, to get our attention, to pay attention to what feels really good and what feels really bad. So the way the emotional brain is wired is that if we're having an experience that we are is, is really highly valenced, which means it's very strong, either positive or negative, the brain mind goes, oh, what's that? And pays attention to it. And then we make that connection between that event and something that is really pleasurable or painful. Now, as I explain in my book, that whole system has been hijacked. So when we talk about dopamine, which is really a learning signal, it's kind of, I call it the slutty neurotransmitter. When I teach behavioral (laughs) neuroscience, the kids love that because drug, sex, rock and roll, likes on Instagram kind of get that system tweaked. those Those neurons, those cells go, woo! There's what we call tonic dopamine, which is what is the regular levels of dopamine in our system, okay? And then there's phasic uh, dopamine, which gets triggered by events. Oh, got this little reward, boom, the dopamine signals go up. If your tonic dopamine, your baseline dopamine is so elevated or so depressed as a result of getting burnt out by all of this impinging stimuli, And believe me, they pay a lot of engineers a lot of money to take our social media and all the things that people are consuming every day and make it especially potent to hijack that dopamine system. So what happens is the signal no longer signals anything important if it's being turned on all day long. So as a result, we're not really feeling the natural reward system or the pleasure system turning on, like in a face-to-face connection thing. Nature's wired us to experience that as really reinforcing. Being Mm. connected physically and emotionally with people is actually the best way to stimulate well-being through the care system, powered by our own opioids are are we produce these feelings of well-being through these endogenous or internally produced chemicals so if we're spending all the time plugged into this dopamine hijacking system social media and you see this with people they're in the room but they're on their devices which is why we're not experiencing the pleasures that we're wired for. It's why we're not having as much sex, connection, satisfaction. Dopamine is about wanting. It's about wanting to pursue these experiences where the care system, which is a very potent system that is really about satisfaction. 
So we're Mm. seeking, 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 wanting, 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 but not really liking and being satisfied. We will continue the conversation with Nan Wise after we take this moment to thank our sponsors for this episode. Big thanks to Uber Lube, our favorite silicone lube that's been by our bedside for many years now. And we invite you to explore Uber Lube's high quality premium silicone lube that you can use for every body part whenever you want a little bit more slip, slide, and glide in your erotic touch. Silicone lube is condom compatible and gentle on your body so you can use it anywhere and everywhere. Go to uberlube.com, that's U-B-E-R-L-U-B-E, uberlube.com, and use the code PLEASURE for 10% off and free shipping. That's uberlube.com. Use the code PLEASURE for 10% off and free shipping. We'd also like to thank our friends at Dipsy Stories. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories designed to turn you on and bring you into your body through the power of audio erotica. First-person narratives bring sexy scenarios to life and come at you like a hungry lover. And if you're in the mood for something more gentle, sweet, sleepy soundscapes can lull you into a beautiful slumber. For listeners of this show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com pleasure. That's dipsystories.com slash pleasure, and you'll get 30 days full access for free. That's dipsystories.com slash pleasure, D-I-P-S-E-A stories, dipsystories.com slash pleasure. And you'll find this link in the show notes and along with all of the other generous offers from our sponsors at pleasuremechanics.com slash toolbox. And now back to our interview with Dr. Nan Wise. This is my mission. I'm mm-hmm. waging a personal war on anhedonia. Let's stomp it out. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's talk about anhedonia. Um, when I asked you what of all the topics do you want to do a deep dive on, uh, anhedonia is what came up. Um, so get us started. What is anhedonia? How common is it? And how do we recognize it? Anhedonia is the inability to experience satisfying pleasures in everyday life. So an is without, hedonia is pleasure. I would say that Mm. anhedonia is now a full tilt plague. That Mm. when you look at the numbers of people having anxiety disorders, depression, stress-related disorders, um, sexual challenges, pretty much every mental health and well-being challenge at its root is anhedonia because anhedonia is not only a symptom of those conditions, it's a cause. So it's a really vicious cycle. So when you think about it, when you can't enjoy everyday life, you don't feel pleasure getting up out of the bed in the morning You're not going to engage in the world in ways that will be reinforcing. 
So it causes people's behavior to change. They are less likely, as I talk about the core emotions, the seeking system, which is powered by dopamine to get us out in the world to explore, goes flat. It gets so flat that people don't have motivation, exuberance, enthusiasm, drive. And then you're not seeking out connection, which is the care system. You're not connected. You're not enjoying the set. Just sitting and talking to you right now, I'm feeling such joy. And that social mm -hmm. joy is so important. That elicits the play system that gets us to explore and experiment with the world, to be able to engage, to cooperate. You know, kids learn, you know, co cooperation and competition through play, hopefully, if they're allowed to play. So anhedonia really is that vicious cycle of the inability to explore, experience pleasure and explore the world in a way where it's reinforcing. And what happens is people turn to practices that are what I like to call faux, F-A-U-X, faux pleasures. So you see a lot of dysregulated eating where people are eating, the only pleasure in life they get is eating. So they'll eat a lot. Or alcohol. You know, alcohol gives people a buzz. And so addiction, or if it's, you know, over use of spending money or whatever it is. Like, I like online shopping. That's my hobby. But I don't have that hijack me. It's a little thing that I enjoy doing, but when they when behaviors get dysregulated, generally speaking, compulsive behaviors are at its root an attempt to solve a problem of the inability to experience pleasures otherwise. Mm. It's a plague. And when we're talking about pleasure, we're talking about everything from the satisfaction of a cup of cold water after a hot walk to the extraordinary pleasures of lovemaking and spiritual transcendence, right? It's that whole spectrum of pleasure that becomes unavailable to us. You know, as you're yeah. talking, Chris, I'm thinking we focus on orgasm as pleasure, but what we might want to think about is organismic pleasures, the pleasures mm. of being an organism in our bodies, the pleasures of the moving the body, feeling like being in our bodies and moving them. You know, I, it breaks my heart. I have so many um, clients who don't like their bodies. I don't like my body. My body is not good enough. I can't be happy until I get the body that I want. Where the women who donated their orgasms to science for us all said the same thing. And, and they had the most incredible journeys. Not They all had some kind of challenge to their organismic and orgasmic pleasures that had them go on a mission to find pleasure. And they all said the same thing. I learned to love my body. I learned to be in my body. Mm. And learning to love our bodies isn't usually a visual thing, although we can come to admire ourselves in the mirror. It's often a feeling thing. Um, how do we learn how to feel pleasure in our body and enjoy our bodies and our body's response to the world, right? The idea of stopping and smelling the roses has become so cliche, but it's really about how do we enjoy the pleasure that is so readily available to us? 
And, you know, in the book, you talk about how anhedonia can become almost like an emotional wallpaper that we don't even recognize as our lived condition. And our culture supports this as long as you're productive and paying taxes, lack of pleasure isn't always problematized. Um, so how do we come to recognize if we are in an anhedonic state, if our pleasure is becoming less and less available to us? And then what options are available to us to change pathways towards more pleasure and ultimately satisfaction? Well, you know, what's interesting is that we always know what's going on with our core emotions. It's hard to hide from feelings of fear, feelings of panic, feelings of lust, feelings of care. All of that circuitry is there. And it really comes down to paying attention, taking some just time to pay attention to the experience that we have. When you're getting up out of bed, what's going on in your mind? What's happening with your body? What's your emotional weather? Self-attunement is a key practice to being able to first have awareness of where are we in our lives. If we're dreading getting up out of bed, that's a big signal. So most of us, if that happens, we go, oh, I should take an antidepressant. Well, maybe that might help. But we need to also look at how are we living our lives? Are we moving our bodies? Are we balanced? Are we paying attention to the pleasures of everyday life? You know, we need to, to recognize that if we sit with ourselves just a little while, just I'm talking five minutes enough to take stock, like really, how am I this morning? How am I at lunchtime? How am I at dinner? It's prioritizing just being able to have that mindful relationship with yourself. And if you don't think that's important, then that's really very interesting. Then we've been overly socialized to think that how we feel and how we're experiencing things really doesn't matter as long as we're fulfilling our roles and we're being good consumers and we're, you know, parenting our kids. If we're not finding pleasure, we're not going to be able to be the best kind of present person wherever we are. It's Pleasure yeah. is that important. The ability to experience it makes life worth living and makes us better people in our relationship to self and other. So I think that, you know, just becoming aware of this as an issue is big. Um, educating ourselves. It's a radical thing when you think about it to prioritize our core wellness, our core emotional being, and to and to realize that we matter, how we feel matters. It matters not just to us, but to the people around us, to the biggest of the collectives. Well, one of the things I encounter a lot is when we invite people to feel more deeply, you know, and we're called pleasure mechanics, but we can't pick and choose what we feel more deeply. And so when we choose to feel, we have to be open to feeling the whole range of human emotions. And in your book, you really speak to the service of feeling things like grief or fear and how these are important emotional messengers for us. 
So can you speak a little bit towards um, the willingness to feel it all and kind of the bravery and what comes on the other side of being willing to feel more deeply? The ability to tolerate and even welcome our own emotions and to tolerate and welcome other people's emotions is probably one of the best signs of emotional health. And you know what's really sad to me is that we get so trained to want to change the channel on the feelings, that the feelings don't get to be felt, to be informative, to peak and to release. So in emotions, I talk about two parts of it, that there is the feeling that gives us information, and then there might be the inflammation. And when I'm talking about inflammation, I'm talking about old feelings, feelings that really aren't Mm -hmm. present time. So I think when people have trouble feeling, what's really happening is they haven't had the experience of good attunement from a parent or caretaker who could tolerate their feelings to welcome their feelings so that they themselves learn as children, you know, age appropriately, that they not only could tolerate the feelings, that the feelings have information, you know, like so Let's say there's a a child who has a meltdown after a baseball game. So upset that they lost. A parent who tries to change the channel for them. I even heard of a psychologist told one of my clients because the kid was having a meltdown after the game, being disappointed with his performance, that that the parent, in this case a man, should tell the son that he can't play if he's going to have a reaction like that. I'm thinking, oh my God, to have a psychologist say that? So what my client learned to do was rather than rushing to try and change the channel for the kid, let the kid have his feelings. And the kid would get sad and upset and then he would get over it and then they could talk about what his expectations were and his disappointments and how he felt he let his team down. And then they could process the information. And if you think about it, if that kid didn't get that experience of being able to feel his feelings, then peak release, and then download, you know, with his dad, what was going on for him, he would not learn what was the information, was the expectations about he was going to disappoint Pete Moore, that he wanted to play better. And not having learned to be able to have that reaction over time, this could end up a kid who would be unable to process emotions as an adult and would have all this backlog of emotions that were unprocessed that every time an emotion got stirred up, there'd be this inflammation which was not present time stuff. So that's the distinction I make. I think a lot of times what stops us from feeling the feelings is that we haven't been held, meaning somebody being able to be there with us, not to change the channel, not to, oh, here's a cookie, or, oh, don't worry about it, we'll go do this next time, but just to, I hear that you're sad, or I hear that you're upset, that's okay. And let them be in it until they feel the peak and release. You know, having emotions fully is orgasmic. There can be this release that's delicious when we get sad and then it peaks or we get mad and then it peaks. 
we get scared and it peaks. Then there is this sense of release and relief. So, you know, a lot of our culture depends on us not emotionally processing. Because if we emotionally process more, we might be less prone to be consuming the pain relieving drugs and the, you know, trying to buy our way into pleasures that are, you know, faux pleasures that are not really healthy hedonism pleasures. So, you know, we just get trained that we, we can't feel too sad, too mad, too scared, too happy even. My issue, when I worked a lot on myself in gestalt therapy, which is all about feeling the emotions in the body, I was much more comfortable being sad and being anxious. I knew how to do that. For me, it was scary to feel too good. And I was afraid if I felt too good that the bottom would drop off or I'd get punished or whatever. So we can get over that too. We can get over feeling good. We can feel the good. It peaks and it releases and then we're present. What are the other practices you find most essential if you're thinking about deepening erotic embodiment and our capacity to feel? I think the mindset of radical acceptance is so, so important. Mm. You know, just practicing being as we are, like this is, a you know, in the moment, here I am, full permission. What I, what changed my life at Harvard Mind Body Institute was one of the practice, the practice tape they gave us started with full permission to be exactly as you are. And I remember <laughs> having such anxiety there about having to lead a meditation, like a relaxation training, because back in the day I had such anxiety and such public speaking. And something just clicked like that for me. Full permission to be as I am. Full permission for this moment to be as it is. And that's the lead-in I use for work with clients when I'm making them tapes, whether it's hypnotherapy tapes or breath tapes, whatever it is. And, you know, something just softens and loosens in me, even as I say that now. And I really, I think, was such so much the active ingredient of mindfulness is that full permission to simply be. And we're giving it to ourselves and for the moment to be as it is. So here we are. Here we are. Let's be with what mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. What is there to feel in this very moment? Mm -hmm. Right now, I'm feeling a lot of gratitude for you and acknowledgement that we could talk for hours and days, but I want to respect your time. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. And folks will find more and your book in the links below. Nanwise, thank you so much for your wisdom today. Thank you so much, Chris. I've been smiling this whole time with joy for just knowing you and your work in the world. We hope you enjoyed this interview with Dr. Nan Wise. You will find bonus clips, including Dr. Nan's take on orgasm and why it is so healthy for our entire bodies to be in the pursuit of pleasure. Don't miss that clip and the rest of the bonus reels at pleasuremechanics.com slash wise. That's pleasuremechanics.com slash wise. We will see you next time for another episode of Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics. I'm Chris from pleasuremechanics.com, wishing you a lifetime of pleasure. Cheers. Cheers.